Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going, Dave? Doing pretty good, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Did you get anything interesting done this week? Um, yeah. Yes and no. Didn't get a lot done this week because I had a, a bout of sickness of some sort for a couple of days right in the middle of the week. And I did a fair bit of consulting work this week with my FileMaker customers. So that took up a lot of my productivity time, but I did some VR stuff Friday and over the weekend and uh, went to COG yesterday. Um, How was it? I missed this meeting. It was fun. I got to show eight different people my game, which was cool. I haven't shown anybody aside from like you and two other people. And so it was nice to just like walk up to complete strangers and like put this on your face. (laughs) (laughs) It's the great thing about the daydream. (laughs) One of these days I'm going to end up with a trench coat full of HMDs and just like walk up to strangers in airports. Like put this on your face. What? I saw that in a in a old sci-fi movie or something like the the guy with all these cords coming out of him running to like his chorus around him just just all these people mentally connected into his world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I could Joe, just make the VR hub. When I can also just you know make a snow crash scene and just get people on snow crash. Basically, just a you know a static scene like here, here you can try some mm-hmm. snow crash. I'm not much of a drug dealer, so I don't know if that would fly. <laughs> I never even had a pager. I used to have a pager. Were you a drug dealer? No. Huh. But it was before it was reasonable to get a cell phone as a human being. Okay. I mean, there was there was a time that it was just really, really spendy, but pagers were pretty cheap. Mm-hmm. You get one for like twenty bucks a month. My brother had a pager when he was in high school, and he wasn't cool, so I can only assume he sold drugs. Mm. It's always been what I've assumed, but I don't know that. So, what are you working on? Uh, I'm still working on the book. So I wrapped up chapter ten. After getting stuck last time trying to do that one piece of animation mm-hmm. and not being able to figure out how to make it happen. Um, but we resolved that. Did that stay in the show? Yep. Okay. Then everybody else heard my confusion as well. So wrapped up chapter 10, which ended up having all the enemies. Again, this is the first person shooter section of the book. So started making enemies, having them spawn at particular locations, animating their moving around, their attacking, firing rounds, um, varying levels of damage, and then pickups. So boosts to various kinds of ammo for different guns and uh, health and armor boosts. Um, And having those spawn at locations and then... Like, here's the script that spawns, here's the script that runs the pickup, and then the pickup is informing the player or the gun. I, I don't know, it was weird. But <laughs> adding ammunition to things, it was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then adding sound for all of that. So the first 
game in the book i mean it was a lot of new material but it took eight chapters this one's done all of this in two they're pretty meaty chapters yeah so i've got one more chapter on the first person shooter and then i'll be moving into what was it the rts i think so it's just like a bunch of 2d games or a 2d game 2d platformers is section three that's the uh, that's the section that I mostly just read over while walking around the park rather than working through. Hmm. So at this point, we got introduced to coroutines, mm-hmm. which are neat. Neat. The first thing, the first time I googled Unity coroutines, the first response I found was somebody on Stack Overflow saying, "Is this really necessary?" <laughs> like hmm <laughs> go on I've, I've seen them used a couple times the book that i referenced last week um the unity five by example book used them a few times in like the second and third games that we made and i can definitely see how they're handy for certain types of activities that you want that you don't want to be frame dependent. It's just, it's a weird concept, but it's really cool what they do. Well, I mean, the the core concept of what you're accomplishing is pretty straightforward to the point that Swift, C-sharp, and even FileMaker basically have the exact same function. It's delay for some period of time and then run this so that I don't have to think about this thing. But the but this is happening, you know, sixty or ninety or one hundred forty frames a second, like that's the cool part. Like FileMaker is not going to do that. The weird part to me was the structure with the yield call, because in most of these, what they'll say is, I run a command that says wait X period of time and then run this function. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Unity construct for that is go ahead and call this function right now. And at the beginning of that function, probably, it's going to say, wait so long, and then finish this function. Kind of, sort of, in a separate thread. That's kind of weird. But you can you can do the thing you're talking about as well. I came across that mm-hmm. in that book. It was called something else, but that same thing of start this in X seconds or X minutes or whatever. Yeah, there might be some advantages there in kind of kind of in a block sort of way in that you could sample the settings for the object at the time that the call was made. So you call the function, it records some information, and then drops out and comes back in later. Mm-hmm. But you already have those items recorded without having to build like secondary data structures or actually supporting something like blocks um that would snap all of those settings off when the block was created and then run them that way i don't know it's it still feels weird uh what was my line here i'm not sure it's bad but it's definitely weird yeah um i'm also not a huge fan of calling coroutines by name there's a couple of spaces where they do like call this function, but 
you hand it a string, which is the name of the function. Yeah, I've seen more and more of that in recent weeks. I know you're not going to like it. And it's one of those things that <laughs> I just don't care. Like, whatever. Like, I know you could you could mess it up, but you could just not mess it up and it'd be fine. Sure. Um, and, and like, there's always the option to not mess it up. And that's why we write code that has no bugs. Like, just don't mess it up in the first place. And you never really have to learn how to debug. It's easy. Um, well, one of the things, uh, go ahead. Like in, in FileMaker, there was a time where I got really into the idea of writing abstract code without referencing anything by string with doing lots of, you know, object passing around in FileMaker, bunch of stuff that's really not native ideas in FileMaker, but it was kind of kludgy workarounds, basically neat developer e-tricks that the customers that I was working for didn't benefit from. Um, and it's, it took me a while to realize just how much kind of busy work I was making for myself with that type of thinking. Um, it was, it was a particular job that I worked at where they had just a very different culture of, you know, the, the main thing we're doing here is making stuff for other people. It's, we're not making it cool and we're not making anything that someone who has downloaded FileMaker for the, the first time can't figure out without a little bit of Googling. Um, so I've just become much more practical. So if if Unity or FileMaker or the, any other environment says, we reference by string, I don't go out of my way to make enumerations or anything else to abstract that out. To like, nope, this is how we're doing it. This is how I'll do it. So that's just kind of where I stand with that. Yeah, prior to learning Swift, I did a fair amount of work with Objective-C. And Objective-C really aggressively uses a message passing uh, idiom and or, or design pattern. And so the, the trick is that you can just like, oh, this object here, pass it this message. It doesn't matter if that object knows how to respond to that message because if the object doesn't know how to respond to that message, it just does nothing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even generate an error message. It just keeps on going and so you can pass it a message and the smallest typo will just not generate any kind of error not even at runtime your code will just not function the way you want it to and it was one of the things that i liked about swift is that swift has a tendency to turn a lot of things that would be runtime errors in another language into compile time errors. Mm -hmm. Like it wants all those little connections solidly made, definitively created, so that at compile time it can go, nope, this isn't going to work. Which places constraints on you when you're writing it and reduces that ability to kind of go, no, just make it do whatever I want. <laughs> um, there was a, a talk by Will Shipley at one point when he was doing early... Uh, iOS development and there was a there was no function for turning the background color of a row to a different color you couldn't like make the row blue <laughs> it was there it was just that Apple hadn't published it it was one of the undocumented things and so Will got around that at least at the time by going so I've got this object I don't know what it is I mean it, it might be a row but I, I really don't know what this thing is uh, 
hey, thing, I'm just going to, like, ask you to change your color and... Maybe it'll work and maybe it won't, but we're not really going to talk about that. And that was cool and simultaneously a, a suggestion that maybe something's wrong here. Yeah. Um. So it, it, anyway, it's after having done a bunch of Swift, and I think part of the reason that I had so little difficulty migrating all of my Swift code to C Sharp was that I had initially written it in Swift. And so I was using the kind of uh, uh, solid typing and such like that in all the Swift things. So when I converted that code mostly line for line to C Sharp, it retained a lot of the advantages of the static typing out of Swift. Hmm. Part of the reason why I think my C Sharp code worked so well. Um, Because it was almost trivial to do it yeah. complexity-wise. It was just a bunch of work, but it wasn't hard. Anyway, um, it's just a spot that every time I see that pop up in an example or in the book, I'm like, oh, God. I, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna make a constant. <laughs> I'm going to define a constant somewhere that's just that string, and then I'm always going to use the constant so that I know that we're always pointing to the same thing, and I've got compile time checking that all of this works. Because I'm going to mess this up. I know I'm going to mess this up. I'm dumb like that. I'm going to make this mistake. Nice. Um, so that was an interesting one. I also saw a spot. Um, so I think I talked maybe last time about the what seems weird to me in Unity's API where... Sometimes we're talking about the game object and sometimes we're talking about the transform. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it almost uses those interchangeably. Yeah, that was a couple weeks ago. It turns out that one of the properties of a transform is the transform. (laughs) It's actually dot transform. Nice. Which gets you the same thing. So the cool part is if you've got a variable... is it and just, you didn't pay any attention to whether it's a transform or a game object. You can just say thingy.transform and you're going to get the transform. So it's just transforms all the way down. Yes. Nice. Um, so what was my line here? Uh, the transform of the transform is the transform. I think we, I think we got our show title. <laughs> um. And then there's another spot where I'm giving myself confusion when I don't need to. It's just me not quite picking up on the way it works. That's my job. Yeah. Um, I keep wanting to use something like self mm-hmm. rather than game object. Yeah. Like self.transform. There is a this, but it, it works on the script, not the game object. See, you stomped all over my punchline. Go on. Yes, there's this. It's just not going to work the way I want it to. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, I I keep wanting to use self. And it's it's getting me the script. Never mind. That's very selfish. (laughs) Oh. Oh.
the uh, the alternate show title. <laughs> Jerk. So yeah, that was my fun with chapter ten. Cool. So, do you want to talk about your other idea? So, as I'm digging into this, I'm also realizing, like, I'm realizing how much Unity does for me and how much, how little code it's going to take to do some of the things that I want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. But simultaneously, I'm also realizing that I need to go simpler. Like, for my first thing... Let's go for a simpler project and a simpler project and a simpler project until I get to something that I can really pop out and do the complete curve, the the, the entire arc of game development from beginning to end um, and, and see how all of that flows in Unity before I start trying to do something more complicated. And so there was an old idea that I'd had for an Apple TV game um, that involves... Uh, a 2D platformer where you're being chased by clowns. Nice. Um, and it's really pretty simple. I think it's got some fun mechanics in it. And the thing was, at the time, I was going to do it in Sprite Kit. I, I wanted to target the Apple TV. But targeting the Apple TV now is silly. But with Unity, I'm not entirely sure I have to care all that much about what I'm targeting. And so maybe I can actually just just pump this thing out. Yeah. And see how it works. See the entire arc with this simpler game. It's also a topic that I've discussed with some family members a couple of times was this idea. And so with the holidays coming up, if I can get through another couple of sections of the book and then just kind of whip up a prototype of this. I can demo it with people who have already had the idea in their head and then see kind of what the feedback is like before digging into something more elaborate. Mm -hmm. So even though this is a podcast about VR game development, I may actually spend a little bit of time making a not VR game and I hope everybody will forgive me. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's fine. I think the idea of going through the entire process of making a game is valuable regardless of whether or not it's VR or AR or 2D or 3D or even a board game or even making a paperclips game. Just going through the entire kind of creative process. I mean, that's what I went through in a simplified version with Random Arrow. I mean, looking, It's been a year since almost a year since I published that on the Apple store and still like 10 of people have bought it. And uh, so not a, not a successful project in any monetary means, but it was enough to teach me that I liked this kind of work as opposed to spending the next 20 years making databases. Um, but it was also enough to like looking on it now, it was interesting that I was able to ship anything, not knowing anything about the game design process. <laughs> well, and here's the cool part. Now it's back catalog. Mm -hmm. So when your big cool game comes out and hits it really big, everybody's going to go back and say that they were one of those 10 people who bought Random Arrow. I know nine of them. So only, <laughs> only one person gets to be the mystery one. There's one person that I don't know that bought the game, and they left a review. 
but thousands of people can claim to be that person mm-hmm. and will and they'll get the golden ticket yeah so yeah that's kind of my plan do a few more sections in the book and then pop in and kind of try and whip something out for the holidays uh it's already november so probably not by thanksgiving but hopefully by christmas mm-hmm. yeah i like the idea of just getting a prototype like get the core game loop see if it's fun you know use primitive assets are you thinking about doing this in 2d or 3d uh probably 2d 2d okay so you haven't done anything with the sprite stuff in unity yet but that's next in the book and it's some neat stuff it does feel like you're uh, you should check for an update in the book, see if they've updated it already, because uh, Unity 2017.2 came out since we got that book, and they just brought a bunch of new tools with uh, just in the 2D portion of Unity that weren't there before. And there's some of the stuff from that Unite Austin conference, that was a heavy focus. They had a lot of sessions on that, and a lot of those are showing up on YouTube, so you may want to reference some of that. But um I'm interested to see if they updated that book. Yeah, that's, that's a ton of stuff to check into. I mean, what I saw just looked really cool. Basically, like painting a sprite map the same way that you paint a landscape with materials. Just like, okay, I'm gonna make this entire scene. I'm just gonna, you know, attach this texture to the brush and start painting the background. And okay, now I need some floor. Let's put some blocks in. Like. It was really cool design process. And it, it's a lot like Sprite Kit. Um, I'm surprised that Unity was adding this stuff in 2017 that Sprite Kit's had for as long as it's existed. Well, I think part of that is that Unity's been trying to figure out how to stair-step down into 2D. Yeah. Because they started with full 3D and all of that, and everybody went, well, can't you simplify this a little bit? And so they've been trying to kind of boil it down and boil it down and strip away the excess in, in my brain Z layer. But, you know, people are weird sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it looks like the book is still saying 27, uh, 2017.1 is what it's done from, so they haven't released an update yet. Okay. But I wouldn't... I wouldn't anticipate that that's going to be all that long. Yeah. I don't know that it'll just be days, though. Yeah, they're pretty good about updating their stuff. I'd, I would, I'd be surprised if they do an update every version of Unity or Unreal because they move pretty fast. They probably do you know, every six months or a year for those books. Cause it, would get, it would get pretty tiresome to ship a new book every two months. Yeah, do you remember what was what it was before 2017.1? Uh, it was Maybe. 5.6. Okay. So they've got a release history there, and they did Unity 5.5, Unity 5.6, and Unity 2017.1. Nice. So, you know, not each little patch, but each substantive version. It looks like they've been doing an update. Wow. It's a lot of work. Why, yes, it is. You should get really good at this stuff. They're always calling for additional writers and uh, teachers. They've been calling for some VR people recently, which I've t- retweeted some of that stuff. So 
dear listener, if you are good at this stuff, unlike us, you should uh, <laughs> think about writing some tutorials on the Ray Wenderlich site. Cool. So I've got some other stuff that I can chat about, but that's mostly, you know, end of show filler. What do you got going on? So like I mentioned at the top of the show, I went to COG yesterday, the Central Ohio game dev group. And uh, it was a good meeting. I think I was there. You know how when you and I go, at some point you kind of go, all right, we're, you know, we're, we're leaving. Come on. <laughs> you, you weren't there to do that. So I was there until 530. <laughs> I was going to say for, for reference, there's never any argument from Joe. No, like, I, I just, I need some kind of outside influence to tell me to stop talking. Okay. Apparently, you know, it's, you know, the only time that I get chatty is at these types of meetups. So. I get less chatty at these kinds of meetups. Yeah. yeah. You get more chatty at, at cough mug though. A little bit. Smaller group. Anyway, so you were talking about the COG meeting. Yeah. So there was a really good presentation about prototyping um, by the guy who did is working on the uh, Dogs at Work game. I forget the, the title of his game, but that's his company's name. He, he makes a lot of games that have to do with dogs because he's got a really great dog. And uh, he likes dogs. And who doesn't like dogs? But uh, he did a really good talk on prototyping and walked through several examples over the years of versions of his games that were just like the blocked out prototyping like is this going to be fun and then if it is do this and there was he walked through a couple of examples of like i was gonna do this but this part wasn't fun so i gave up on the entire project or you know i had i had my idea list to do this feature but then i shipped the game without it and i only sold X number of copies and I would have wasted six months of my life on that feature and still not sold anymore. So, you know, just kind of learning those types of lessons. Um, so that was probably the, the star of the show for me anyway, just all the prototyping stuff. And then after the presentations, I got to show off my VR game slash experience slash one guy called it a toy, which is probably a good description it's not so much a game because it's not really an objective just something to play with um so i might kind of consider that when i start working on marketing copy it is an experience or a toy and uh yeah i got a lot of got some feedback from it people everybody liked it that was you know nobody scoffed at it or told me to get out of here everyone immediately like thought of course you're doing this this is why wouldn't you make this why isn't this out there already (laughs) which is the only reason i haven't really talked about the idea on the show because it it is whenever i ship this thing it will become incredibly obvious what i've been working on and everybody will smack themselves on the forehead and say why didn't i ship that i could have done that in like in two days it took joe two months or three months or four months or however long (laughs) months yes months and months Months and months. So yeah, it was it was cool to get some feedback. Um, it was just it just felt really good to show people what I've been working on. You know, mostly just sitting in my apartment by myself all day for you know a month and a half working on this by myself, and uh, it felt good to just show some other people and get some feedback. And I I didn't even show 
any of the versions with AI. I showed just the placeholder Paul version where I'm using nav meshes and just really dumb behavior. Um, and even that was fun enough for people to get the idea and start giving me ideas, giving me things to try, things like that. So got a ton of notes, a ton of things to implement. And um, one of the guys I was talking through some of the challenges I was having with AI and pathfinding and navigation. And he turned me on to the idea there's a component and a system in Unity's navigation called off-mesh off nav links. And they're a way to join multiple navigation meshes together, either dynamically or you can do it through the component system. Um, and you can basically those links can be defined of like allow jumping between there or falling like falling off of a building or stepping off a curb or stairs things like that so i think that's going to be one of the things that i've been stuck on is how do i go how do i avoid an object on one nav mesh but also have a nav mesh on top of that avoided object and climb up on top of that thing. And I think I can do that with this tool. And uh, yeah, I got some experimenting to do. I started playing around with it today. For some reason, I can't I can't get a navigation mesh to build on any of my furniture in apartment 304. Like I can throw a Unity cube in the scene and add a mesh to that, or add a mesh to that, and it's fine. But for some reason, they're not showing up on any of the uh, the furniture. And I'm not sure why that is. I thought maybe they were just too small, so I tried like adjusting the voxels of the nav mesh, and that didn't do anything. I tried making great big furniture and adding a nav mesh to it. <laughs> that didn't help. So yeah, I got some troubleshooting to do there. But yeah, cog was you know pretty valuable. Um, you know, just a good time to go. There was some announcements they made. If you're in the Columbus area or you know, central Ohio area, the uh, some of the multivarious and some of the other educators um, in the game dev space around here are putting together some courses at the Columbus Idea Foundry. <clears throat> you can go to the Columbus Idea Foundry website and find out more there. But they're doing a Unity course and a Maya 3D modeling course. And I think each of the courses are two hours, $75 to attend, um, bring a laptop if you don't have one they can provide one and uh yeah just i think the unity one is, is really you know just make your first game type of course learn how to move around the editor that type of stuff but it's definitely worth checking out if you've been thinking about getting into unity and uh you know i'd like to see them be successful with these courses and start teaching on a wide array of topics and so yeah check that out so my other topic is um, I told Dave to avoid my Twitter feed over the weekend. and then uh, I haven't seen the Twitter feed. I don't have any it. idea what you're about to talk about. Okay. So the bad news is I'm not buying your dev kit. Okay. So the good news is go ahead and open that folder that I sent you. Should be a bunch of images in there. 
reacting to images is prime podcast material. <laughs> okay, so living room. I see the Vive plugged in and kind of hung on the wall. And there's a little MSI box mm -hmm. next to your TV. So I got a new PC. And uh, I know all of the real nerds out there are going to scoff at the fact that I bought a pre-made, pre-built PC, but I just don't have it in me to build one. So after scouring the internet and uh, reading tons of reviews and watching videos, this was pretty much the best I could come up with in my price point. And hardware-wise, it's fine. This is not a workstation. This is not a pro workstation by any means. This is a gaming PC that's meant to run VR in my case. Um, so I'm not going to be, you know, putting a Xeon chip in this anytime soon and mm -hmm. using it to render 8K video, stuff like that. But uh, the main reason this exists is because as much as interesting as I find Maya and things like it, I really don't ever want to use them if I don't have to. And uh, I'm working in VR, on VR games and experiences, and I'd rather work in VR as much as possible. And we've talked a lot about Google Blocks on the show and uh, a couple other tools. So I really wanted to get back into an environment where I can be working in VR as much as possible. And it, you know, it is kind of silly to be spending all day working on assets in the Vive and then export them and then throw them in Unity and put them onto a Daydream headset. But uh, that's kind of what I'm doing for now. So I'm still, you know, the project is still staying the same. I'm still working on the same project. But uh, using blocks and a couple other tools to make 3D content and also some, I started playing around with a couple of games or experiences to make music as well. So... I spent a little bit of time over the weekend in blocks and it's really cool. I really like how they laid out the controls in it. They're iterating on it pretty quickly and adding features. The downside to it, at least for me, from what I've found out so far, and I might just be missing stuff, but I haven't found any like snapping tools and I don't have a steady enough hand to do any kind of precision work in it. Mm. So I'll throw a link in the show notes, but I, I made a really bad chair um, and uploaded that to the poly site. It's just a low poly chair and it's, you know, one leg is bent and one leg is longer than the others. And yeah, it's just kind of a mess. So for those following at home, can I tell them what this is? Sure. This is an MSI Trident 3 uh, Mystic Light. Is that just the color? Yeah, it's the Arctic edition with the GTX nine or ten seventy in it, and a you know recent KB Lake chip. Okay, can I ask what this set you back? Uh, Fifteen hundred. Okay. And I did just to force whatever nerd credit gets me, which probably isn't any. I did price out the same components on PC Part Picker, and it was only two hundred dollars cheaper. I'm like, well, my time isn't worth that. <laughs> So yeah, I'll just get it. No, no, I I built my own, and it was a 
wonderfully horrible experience. <laughs> and I'm happy for the geek cred. And I will probably never, ever do it again. <laughs> nice. It was really nice to... I got this thing Friday evening. I think it came at 6.30. And by 7.15, I was in VR. And the longest portion of that was just turning on, turning it on the first time. Windows is like, hey, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to install some updates. Like, I know you <laughs> Come are. Come back in an hour. <laughs> yeah. And it even says on the screen, this is going to take a while. <laughs> At least they're being honest. So yeah, got it all set up. Um, the I'm not really working on it. It's mainly just a VR machine. And I've got a mouse and keyboard out there. It's hooked up to the TV right now, so there's no monitor on it. So I, I really like that. So when I have people over to try VR, we can just watch them on the TV rather than looking at a tiny viewport on the laptop or something. Um, but obviously a TV is not a monitor and you don't see the refresh rates that you're used to on a, a good quality monitor. So there's that. Um, as far like when I was installing software on it and downloading stuff from Steam, I remoted onto it. And I tried a couple different ways. And I'm hoping you can provide some better options. At one point, I listened back to an episode of our previous podcast to see what you had to say about Microsoft's access for remote desktop on Windows Home. You had a nice rant there that informed me what I needed to know. Um, so the first thing I tried was uh, Google actually has a Chrome remote desktop tool that it, it, I guess it technically works. It was just kind of meh. Like it's good for, oh, I need to log into my machine and shut this server down for some reason, you know, that type of thing. It's good damage control tool, but it was not, uh, it wasn't good enough for me to do any work on. Mm -hmm. The next thing I tried was forgettable, obviously, because I already forgot the name of it. And uh, that was pretty much the same thing. What was that? Real VNC. Um and it was just a real low fidelity experience. What I'm using now is a trial to Team Viewer, and this was the only thing that I found so far that actually lets me do the remote session over the LAN rather than go out on the WAN and back. Oh, geez. Okay. So I can just I can do everything over the LAN. It doesn't have the graphical fidelity that I want, but it's super snappy. Like there's no latency in me moving the mouse around or typing anything like that. So it's completely usable. I wouldn't do any artwork on it or, you know, if I was going to design a FileMaker layout on it, if I already had the theme made and all the colors picked out, then this would be fine. But I wouldn't like pick colors out with this type of connection. Um, so I'm interested if you've come across any better ideas of like, how can I remote onto a machine locally basically i want the the vmware or the parallels experience but without the virtual machine part i just want the machine part <laughs> um i haven't played with it further um i've been so pleased with running vms for most of my windows work mm -hmm. that i haven't needed it okay um so i i just i haven't looked further yeah so I think Team Viewer is fine for now. If anybody's listening and has a better any better ideas, let me know on Twitter. 
I'm happy to check out other stuff. Um, the only reason I would even want to work on it remotely as opposed to just do VR stuff on there is there's a tool I'm using called Virto Studio VR. Virto Studio is a suite of software. They've got a Mac app. They've got an iOS app, which you may want to check out with your fancy iPad. And it's a 3D modeling software. It's much easier to understand than Maya, but they have a VR version that's much more sophisticated than Blocks. Now, here's the coolest thing that I've seen so far. Their VR version allows you to edit in VR and on the Windows version at the same time. So you could have you could pop out of the headset and make changes on the desktop, or you could have one person on the desktop and one person in VR working on the same scene together. Ooh. Yeah, really cool stuff. Um, I've spent a couple hours in it today, and I think that's the biggest endorsement I give I can give to it. I spent a couple minutes in blocks, and I spent about two and a half hours in Virto Studio today, like just immediately getting into it and running up against like, okay, I don't know how to do this. Um, I'll try something else, things like that. But yeah, it was just a lot of fun. I made some more really bad chairs and, uh, yeah, it was, it's a fun little tool. Um, it, it exports as OBJ files, which is the format that, uh, Unreal Engine uses and quite a, a lot of other programs. So it seems like there's, OBJ and FBX are like the competing file formats in these industries. And everybody supports kind of importing both, but not everybody supports exporting both. This tool can import either, but can only export OBJ and they may add FBX at some point. The only reason that's even notable is Unity works with FBX files and it can import FBX files a little bit cleaner than OBJ files, like it can maintain the materials and textures and stuff like that, um, where it can kind of do the same thing with OBJ files, but you can't really import them in the same way. You have to just drag them in and hope. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I'm what whatever I make in these tools, but both Blocks and Virto will have that OBJ file format. I'll have to drag each asset in make sure the material's attached, do some scaling with the import tools, um, apply any smoothing, stuff like that, and then make a prefab out of that. So there'll, there'll be a couple of steps. And there's, I checked the asset store, I haven't tried any of these, but there are some tools to kind of help automate these processes or to um, basically like set, like, kind of recipes like okay i'm working in this recipe of import so when i whenever I import anything during this process these are the settings i want to apply to those so i can look at getting some of those but for now it's i think it's definitely worth the payoff um just being able to be in the scene working in 3d assets i just felt i don't know i felt like as i'm learning maya i feel like i'm learning a legacy skill it's not a legacy skill yet, and it's going to be years before, you know, working on a desktop doing 3D modeling seems weird. But I think eventually that will seem weird. Like, why would you want to work on a 2D screen to make 3D assets? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to check out this uh, Virto Studio 3D iPad thing. I was just looking at that, and that looks pretty neat. Mm -hmm. There's somebody suggesting here that you can do it on the iPad and in VR at the same time. That it doesn't have to be like 
with Windows or whatever. Oh, really? Yeah. That's now that's just a suggestion in a customer review, but yeah, one person's sitting there with the iPad with the pencil or whatever like that, and then the other person in VR could be kind of cool if I had two people who knew anything about 3D modeling. Yeah. Um, there's also a relatively inexpensive Mac app yeah. called the Verto Shader Editor mm-hmm. that is a thing for playing with shaders. Yeah, that, and, that's one of the reasons I looked at this tool. I looked at it like six or seven of them on Steam. I apologize for the background noise, dear listener. There's a thunderstorm happening in central Ohio right now. It did not see the podcast recording on the schedule and decided to show up anyway. Um, but yeah, this you know this company, they've made a lot of tools and they can... I can do texture mapping for the, the 3D models in these tools. I can make the textures and do the shaders. And yeah, it's just... You know, kind of a one-stop shop as opposed to, okay, start this in Maya and then export the UVs out to Photoshop and then do a bunch of mumbo jumbo <laughs> and then put it back in Maya and make a shader and then import that into Unity and hope the shader turns into a material and then uh, and then watch Unity crash because I forgot to delete the history in Maya like. I can just not deal with any of that and use these much more simple tools. And obviously, these are, I'm never going to be able to do the things that Maya can do, but I'm not doing those things. I'm doing low poly stuff. Right. So I think these, these suit me really well for now. You know, obviously, I haven't used them enough to know that these are going to be long term solutions. And there's some risk to using tools like this. Like, I don't think Blocks is going anywhere anytime soon, but Google does have a history of, okay, we're done with this now. Like, but, but we like that. That was. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you know, it's not without risk. So there are two other tools that I started playing around with, um, and these are for music creation. I am not much of a musician. I played the trombone in middle school. I played in the high school marching band because I was super cool, otherwise known as. Me and my friend Jonathan were the only trombone players in the school district, and they needed somebody on the on the field. But I really just went to marching band for the girls, so I don't remember too much about the music. But uh, I wanted to... I like the idea of making my own game music, or at least background music and sound effects, so I wanted to see what I can do in VR. And there are two apps, one called Soundstage and one called Lyra. There's quite a few others, but these are the two I've checked out so far. Soundstage is, I think, kind of the cooler version of the two, um, where you can just... It's almost like a blueprint system for music, where you can just drag in elements, instruments, notes, rhythms, things like that, and connect them together as nodes over time and i barely scratched the surface with it other than just like making some pretty obnoxious sounds for a while um i think it has a steeper learning curve and i invited a friend of mine who is a musician over like hey come over for some really fun vr gaming and uh by the way you're gonna teach me how to do this while you're here 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 try this thing that i don't understand (laughs) exactly the other one is Lyra, um, and this looks like it was in the Vive X accelerator program. 
So it looks like it has some vibe backing. And it is a really cool, it's much more abstract system where you basically have these little crystals. Each one has a little sound effect and you can connect them together. You can, you know, take this crystal that's like a certain synthesizer sound and attach it to a keyboard real quick and pick which note you want to attach to it and then add that to the chain. And it's basically just drawing these lines and licking them together and you can import. There's a huge content library of samples and things like that. And I couldn't immediately make anything useful, but I started looking in the library at some of the examples and it was just blown away by what you can do both with sound and visually. Um, it's just really, really cool. I haven't actually checked that tool to see, can I export music from this? <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of a, a big deal, but I played with that last night and I was pretty impressed with it. Like they even, at one point they had a Jingle Bells scene um, and it, there's a Christmas tree and the shape of the Christmas tree plays Jingle Bells. So yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Okay. Okay, now I'm going to have to check these out. Mm -hmm. Jerk. Yeah, so the last tool that I haven't checked out yet, I'm not sure if I is gonna, I'm going to in this project. It's probably not worth it, but it's the Unity Editor VR um, where you can do a lot of level design in VR in Unity Editor. And the only reason I say it may not be worth it is because I'm working in such a small scene and I kind of already figured out where everything is going to go. Now I just need to put the right assets there. But I, I think in the next project, if I have a much bigger environment, I can I would love to get to the point where most of my work is spent in VR, either in the Vive or one of the uh, Windows Mixed Reality headsets. You know, they're even adding desktop support so I could be sitting there in Visual Studio and typing code and flipping back over to Unity and then jump into the Unity editor VR mode and yeah, I think it's pretty cool. A pretty cool future is on the horizon. So is Editor VR officially released? It is. Or is it still in the kind of sort of officially released I mean, section? It's a thing you can use. It's not in Unity. It, it's on GitHub as okay. a separate thing. Um, but yeah, they've got whatever, for whatever reason, they've gone that route for now. Okay. Well, it may just not be ready to be a checkbox in the app. Yeah, something like that. So yeah, these so, are way back like five topics ago. Because <laughs> um, you've been kind of on a roll, I didn't want to get in your way. Um, you were talking about having your VR set up so that it would output to the Vive and then to the widescreen TV right next to it. And I've got mine set up the same way, but I've been continuously having a problem where I would really like my audio to come out both from the headset and from the television. Because hmm. if I'm watching somebody on VR, I can see what they're seeing, but I can't hear what they're hearing. So I've always just switched the audio to the the computer or the TV Right, not sure because if you're a thought criminal, and that's okay. I get it. Yeah, that's not the way that works. I wonder if there's a way to set up sound profiles like there is in macOS, 
so in macOS, like the MIDI controller app, you can set up like groups of audio devices to serve as outputs or inputs. I wonder if there's the same type of thing in Windows. It's worth looking yeah, into. I I'd spent a while in blog posts and things like that, and apparently some people have gotten it to work, but it's a pain in the tail for everybody, and... Most people haven't gotten it to work, but I last looked at it six, eight months ago. Yeah. So if you were setting it up new, I didn't know if you'd bumped into it. I mean, the software's revved a dozen times since I last messed with it. Yeah, I'll have to check into it because it would be nice to be able to leave the positional audio on for the person in VR, but still be able to hear just regular audio. Or in your case, you've got surround sound, so I wonder how that would work. I, I'm not even worried about getting to surround sound. I mean, honestly, if it can just come out of the TV speakers, I'll be okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like it should yeah. be possible. Oh, it it certainly should be possible. I just don't understand why it doesn't work. Yeah, but it, I think it's one of those spots where the software is just not quite up there yet, or at least wasn't last time I looked. I don't know. We shall see. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually got a buddy coming into town sometime in the next couple of months who's a big audiophile, music creator, DJ type. And uh, so I'm going to dig into Lyra and Soundstage and yeah, see what that stuff looks like. Now that I've got my deluxe audio strap set up. Yeah, what do you think? I like it. I like it quite a bit. Pretty- I don't know that I hate the non-deluxe audio strap as much as you do it felt like a face lobster <laughs> i've i've got a very large head and so i'm used to head things not fitting at all and the standard strap actually worked relatively well for me hmm. i could adjust it in the right ways and suddenly boom it works and it sits pretty well on my head and that's okay the deluxe audio strap is definitely better. It is absolutely deluxe. But I don't know that the other one is just horribly unusable and should be removed from the box entirely. Um, so yeah, I like it. It's great. It's worth the hundred bucks. Um, I just don't completely hate the old one. Yeah. And then I immediately hopped into my current favorite VR game and played Quiver. Nice. And I hadn't touched it for a couple of months. And um, boy, has it changed. <laughs> the game's under heavy development. And so there's just stuff moving around all over the place. And then they had uh, Halloween adjustments. So there's goblins running around with pumpkin heads and things. And it was just all very, very messy. Nice. But still arrow shooting goodness. Yeah, I have to I have that. I, I have to pop back into it and check it out. I just remember the the couple of times I tried it, I, I felt like the I had gotten so used to the way that Trick, Trickster does mm-hmm. the archery mechanic that I, they were just different enough that I was just missing everything in Quiver. Mm. When did you last play Trickster? last summer so it's been you know two months of vibe free lifestyle 
and it felt really good to get back into six degrees of freedom you know tracked motion controllers like oh yeah this <laughs> i did play a game last night or, or an experience it's just if you have a vive or an oculus just give the developers two dollars because they deserve it it's you know it's a buck or two on steam and it's uh i think it's kitten rescue vr and it's 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 kind of it's, <laughs> it's kind of like richie's flank experience only you have to rescue a kitten and it's you know th- there's just three short experiences the first one's kind of scary and the second one's like oh there's no way i'm doing that and the third one i almost died if i hadn't seen the chaperone bounds i would have died that's the only thing that kept me alive it was terrifying <laughs> rescuing a kitten yeah it was pretty awesome this video is unavailable well jerks so yeah the last thing i want to say is why i chose to get a a pc for the the living room instead of the dev kit or try to get a mac running vr and it's just I spent a lot of time with the last VR workstation trying to get a way to have an office and a VR space and have those be compatible. And it just isn't with the way the place that I live. My office is just too small for good room scale VR. And my living room as an office was just kind of throwing off the rest of my life. So I went with a machine that could kind of integrate with my living room in a non-offensive way. I didn't have to move any furniture, didn't have to make any changes to anything. It's just, you know, plop the PC down, hook up the Vive, put the sensors in the corners, and we're done. Now I've got decent-sized room-scale VR without running into a $3,000 computer or anything like that. And it's kind of the best of both worlds. It's, it's nice to be able to go out there, have a, a nice big area to work in, in VR for an hour to save the assets out to Google Drive, come in the office, start loading things into Unity and dropping them into the scenes and making prefabs and stuff like that. It's, it's a cool workflow to kind of bounce back and forth. Awesome. That's our show for today. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm VRHermit underscore Joe. And if you get the opportunity, please leave us a review on uh, iTunes or like us on Overcast or Pocketcast or your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening.